Thank you, Matt and Ashley, for your faithful service to King Jesus and being a part of what he is doing in advancing his kingdom all throughout the world. Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning and open God's word together. My name is Brandon Stern. I'm one of the pastors here and a member of our preaching team. This morning, we will be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. You can find that on the chair Bible in front of you on page 238. 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to be continuing our study through this exciting book of 1 Samuel. So I think there's a big question this text is wanting us to wrestle with this morning. And here it is. How do you respond to the fears and insecurities you face in life? What are some of the things you do when you feel afraid? Who or what do you turn to when the troubles and uncertainties of life are threatening to overwhelm you? How do you respond? Maybe for some of our younger worshipers, you feel the pressure of an upcoming homework assignment. Maybe you have this big presentation due in school and you just don't think you're going to be able to do it. So in those moments of fear, young worshiper, what do you find your heart turning to? What are you looking to for your hope and your joy? For some of you, your fears and uncertainties swirl around your relationships with others. Maybe your marriage is going through a really tough time and you're afraid of what the future might hold for you. Maybe your kids are struggling and you're concerned about the direction they're heading in life. Maybe you're single and you desperately want to get married and the thought of being alone terrifies you. How do you respond to these fears and insecurities? What does your heart look to for peace and security? Others of you may deal with the fears and insecurities of life uh, through the pressures and demands of work. Projects are due, personnel has to be managed, tough decisions need to be made, sermons have to be prepared. It can all feel so overwhelming and raise the haunting questions of, am I good enough? Do I have what it takes to succeed? There is so much about life that can be scary and unsettling, isn't there? And what 1 Samuel, wants, 1 Samuel 8 wants us to think about is how are we responding to these inevitable fears and uncertainties of life? What do we do when we are afraid? Where do we turn for comfort, for peace, for security? Where do we turn to try to gain a sense of control? And most importantly, What do these actions reveal about our relationship with God? You see, this is what 1 Samuel 8 is about. It's asking and answering this important question. How do God's people often respond to fears and insecurities? And the answer it gives isn't very flattering. But like a doctor who honestly tells us what's wrong with us so that he can help us, God is wanting to help us understand our problem so that then we can receive the grace of his solution. God is graciously wanting us to see through 1 Samuel 8 that when we are faced with fears and insecurities, our tendency 
what we are prone to do is to reject God and our calling to be his distinct people and to stubbornly pursue human solutions for security and peace. So this text is designed to be a mirror that we can see ourselves in. And it's not always going to be a pretty picture, but God has so much grace for it, for us through it all. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we look to his word now in 1 Samuel 8. Gracious Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Your word is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we ask for that this morning. Show us the ways we are prone to reject you and your calling on our lives to be your special and holy people. Help us to see the foolishness of abandoning you and stubbornly looking to other things for our security and peace. Call us again into a deeper, a richer trust in you. Help us to look to you and live faithfully for you, even in the midst of all the fears and insecurities we face. We ask this for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's begin. 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 3. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest prophet, took bribes, and perverted justice. So in these opening verses, we begin to get a picture of the challenge that is facing Israel at this time. The leader who has led them for decades has grown old, and he will soon be gone. And to make matters worse, Samuel's sons, they are nothing like him. They are wicked and evil and cannot be trusted to lead God's people moving forward. And in addition, what we learn from chapter 12 is that the peace and security that Israel has been enjoying under Samuel's leadership is starting to be threatened by Nahash, king of the Ammonites. News is spreading throughout Israel that Nahash has been building an army and he has his eye on their land. So it doesn't take much to understand the fear and uncertainty facing the people of Israel at this moment. Their beloved leader is old and near death. His sons are wicked and can't be trusted to lead the nation forward, and enemies are threatening them. It's a perfect storm of political and national insecurity. So the elders of Israel put their heads together, and they come up with a plan. Look at verses 4 through 5. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old. <laughs> I'm just saying it how it is, guys. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. Now at first, this sounds like a brilliant solution to their problem, right? 
by appointing a king to rule over them, all the political instability and uncertainty would be done away with. The people would begin to come together under their new king, and their new king would lead them into battle against their enemies, and he would bring the peace and security and stability they are all longing for. This plan is pragmatic, it's logical, it's reasonable, and yet it is utterly godless. Look at verses six through eight. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. What are they doing? They are abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Well, that escalated quickly. God sees their demand for a king as a rejection of him. According to God, Israel is doing what they have always done. This is classic Israel, abandoning him and going after other gods. This has been his people's pattern. When faced with fears and insecurities, they panic and reject God. They turn to human solutions to provide the security and peace they long for. So let's think about this some more. Why is Israel's request for a king a rejection of God? After all, it's not like Israel has been forbidden to have a king. Way back in Genesis 17, 6, God promised Abraham, the father of the nation, I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. In Genesis 49, 10, God promised that the scepter will not depart from Judah. So there's this anticipation of kings in Israel even before they become a nation. Then later in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, after God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and was preparing to bring them into the promised land, God gave them instructions about appointing a king for themselves. So clearly, God anticipated that Israel would eventually have a king to rule over them. And the book of Judges, which tells Israel's story after they took possession of the promised land, highlights the people's need for a king. After describing in gory detail the sin and rebellion that was running rampant in Israel, the narrator summarizes this time by saying, in those days, in these evil, wicked days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what seemed right to him. So the book of Judges ends with this longing for a king who will lead God's people in obedience to God. And 1 Samuel itself begins with the hope of a king. After giving birth to Samuel, Hannah prays this to the Lord in 1 Samuel 2.10. She prays, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. So it's clear that kingship itself isn't the problem. God had always intended for his people to have a king. So what is it that makes the elders' request for a king so wrong? Why does God view this as a rejection of him as their king? 
Well, up until this point, the nation of Israel has followed a very predictable pattern. They sin against the Lord, and this results in God's disciplinary judgment, usually in the form of attacks from enemy nations. Eventually, this leads Israel to turn from their sin and to cry out to God to save them. God then graciously raises up a leader to deliver them from their enemies, and then they enjoy a period of peace. However, sooner or later, the cycle starts again, and we do this over and over and over again. Sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance. The book of Judges describes this cycle over and over. And in the previous few chapters of 1 Samuel, we've even seen this cycle, right? In chapter 4, the people's sin leads to a devastating loss at the hands of the Philistines. However, by the time we get to chapter 7, which we looked at last week, the people have begun to long for the Lord again, and Samuel leads them in repentance. He tells them to get rid of all their false gods, all the things they're looking to for security and comfort, and to devote themselves exclusively to the Lord. And the people do this, and then God provides this miraculous deliverance for them. However, here, in 1 Samuel 8, the pattern is broken. Instead of turning from their sin and crying out to God to save them, they say, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. So what's happening? What's happening? When Israel is faced with fears and insecurities that are swirling around them at this time, they chose a human solution to their problem that sidestepped their need for God. Listen to how the people describe their desire for a king at the end of verse 20. They say, we want a king who will judge us go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, we want a king we can see and touch. It's too hard to walk by faith. That was for our ancestors. We want to walk by sight. We want a king we can see marching out in front of us against our enemies. Someone we know will show up and fight for us. Someone who doesn't mess with our repentance and faithfulness. So in seeking this human solution to their fears and insecurities, the people of Israel are rejecting their relationship with God. Instead of humbling themselves before God in repentance and faith, they're taking matters into their own hands. They want the peace and security that the Lord has promised to give them, but without the hassle of turning from their sin and entrusting themselves to God. In some sense, they are acting as if they've advanced beyond their need for God. If we get a king to judge us and fight our battles, we will no longer have to depend on God to do that for us. We can be independent. We can be free. We can be the masters of our fate. So this was Israel's problem. Instead of desiring a king who would lead them in trusting God and obeying his word, which is what God has always intended for Israel's king to do. They desired a king who would replace God. They are forsaking faith in God for a king they can see and touch. Unfortunately, not much has changed in the human heart in the past 3,000 years or so, has it? Like Israel, we are prone to reject God and look to human solutions to our fears and insecurities. Though we don't cry out, appoint a king to judge us, 
we do turn to things other than God and ask them to provide the peace, the security, the comfort we long for in life. So what about you this morning? Where are you tempted to reject God and to look to human solutions to your fears and insecurities? When you feel the pressures and uncertainties and troubles of life crashing down upon you, pressing in around you, what do you find your heart turning to? Where do you go for refuge, for security, for comfort? Remember, just like a king, these things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. They become a problem for us when they replace God in our lives. When we look to them, not God, for the peace and comfort we long for. So what are some of the false kings or God replacements you find yourself turning to in your times of trouble? Maybe for you, you move toward a king who offers you an escape, a quick fix to distract you from the fears that are threatening to unravel you. Maybe you open the fridge or look through the cupboard for something that will numb the pain or dull the anxiety you feel. Maybe you flip on the TV and just escape into a sitcom. Maybe you look at porn or read a book or go shopping. Maybe you grab a beer or a glass of wine or several beers and a couple bottles of wine. Maybe you play a game or you just scroll on your phone. Whatever your escapist king of choice is, you are looking to it to provide the peace and security that your heart longs for. But maybe you face your fears and insecurities differently. Maybe for you, instead of escaping from them, you try to take control of them. So you make phone calls, you develop contingency plans, you work extra hours, you gather supporters, you clean your house, you get angry. In all of these things, you are trying to do whatever it takes for you to feel some sense of control over your life. To suppress that nagging feeling of weakness and vulnerability that you dread so much. All of these and so many others as well are false kings that we are all prone to look to, to cry out to, to turn to, to give us the rest of soul that we so desperately want. What God is graciously helping us see from 1 Samuel 8 is that when we do this, when we turn to human solutions to our fears and insecurities, we are actually rejecting God as our king. We are saying to God, I can no longer trust you to take care of me. I am going to look elsewhere for peace and security. You see, you cannot put your ultimate hope on multiple things. As humans, we are like boats with only one anchor. And so when the storms of life come crashing in around us, we can choose to cast that anchor deep into our God or we can throw it onto the things of this world. However, we cannot have it both ways. It must be one or the other. Either we will place our hope for peace and security and comfort in God or we will look for these things in something else. 
Listen to this quote from David Paulson. He helps us see how everything we do, whether we realize it or not, is informed by our relationship with God. Paulson writes, people are always doing something with God. Human beings inescapably love God or love something else. We take refuge in God or in something else. We set our hopes in God or in something else. We fear God or something else. As humans, it is impossible for us not to love, not to seek refuge in, not to set our hope in, or not to fear something or someone. So the question is never, are you loving? Are you seeking refuge in? Are you fearing something or someone? The question the Bible continually puts before us is what or who do you love? Do you take refuge in? Do you set your hope in? Do you fear? Is it God or is it something else? And what this passage is helping us see is that everything we do is related to our relationship with God. Israel's demand for a king was a rejection of God. God is very clear about this. What they were doing was abandoning him and worshiping other gods. They had taken their anchor off of God and thrown it on a human king. So this is what the elders of Israel were doing in 1 Samuel 8, and this is what all of us are prone to do as well. And as we grow in being able to dig below the surface of our behavior, we will see that there is always a heart that is loving, trusting, fearing, hoping in, finding refuge in something or someone. This is because God created us like this so that we would find all of that in him. But because of our sin, our hearts now have this sick tendency to reject God and to look for these things in human solutions, in other options besides God. But God isn't done graciously exposing our hearts. He wants us to stare a bit more into the mirror of 1 Samuel 8. So let's keep looking at Israel's request for a king. Look at verse 5 again. The elders said to Samuel, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. And then skip down to verses 19 through 20. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then, then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Did you catch what Israel is saying? They are wanting to be just like all the other nations. This is so significant. So in addition to rejecting God as their king, Israel is simultaneously rejecting their calling to be God's distinct people. You see, God had chosen them out of all the nations of the earth to be his special and holy people, to be distinct from the world, and in so doing, to provide a compelling and faithful witness to the world. This was Israel's calling. They were to stand out among the nations as the unique people of God, not blend in with the nations. 
But now, when faced with the fears and insecurities of their time, they reject God and their calling to be his holy people. They want to be just like all the other nations. To be God's special people now seems too costly, too risky. Instead, it seems safer, easier to just go with the flow, to fit in with the ways of the world, to compromise their witness. Dale Ralph Davis calls this our aversion to holiness. He writes, We do not like to be different for God's sake. We do not like to be distinct. We would rather blend. And this is because it's scary to stick out. It's hard to be different. It feels so much safer and easier to simply blend in, to be like everyone else. And yet to do so is to deny our very identity as God's distinct, holy, and special people. So what 1 Samuel 8 is forcing us to wrestle with is where in our lives are we feeling this pressure to compromise our faithfulness to God? Where is the cost of being different from the world feeling like too big a price to pay? I think a big one right now in our culture is this growing pressure to abandon the Bible's teaching that God created humanity as male and female and that he created sex to be enjoyed exclusively between a husband and a wife in marriage. This clear biblical teaching is being challenged all across our culture and many Christians, churches, and denominations are caving under the pressure and choosing to become just like all the other nations. This is hard. This is so hard. It can be scary to stand courageously and compassionately for the truth, especially when loved ones or even your own heart are pulling you in a different direction on this issue. However, despite the pressures we feel from without and even within, we must not give in to the temptation to compromise our calling to be God's distinct and holy people. Tim Chester writes, it is worth reflecting on how the church today finds it very easy to allow or even desire our behavior to be governed, our identity to be shaped, and our message to be dictated by the nations or cultures around us rather than by our God. We may not want a king in order to be like the others, but we do want to be like them. It is attractive, it is popular, and it is more comfortable but it is also a rejection of our identity and calling. To become like the world, church, is a rejection of our identity and calling as God's holy people. So let's reflect on this and allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts for a moment. In your life, where are you feeling the pressure the most to compromise. 
What is threatening your faithfulness to God? In what ways have you become just like everyone else around you? Well, what we have seen so far is that Israel's problem was that when they were faced with their fears and insecurities, they rejected God and their calling to be his holy and distinct people, and they sought to find peace and comfort through human solutions. So let's look now at verses 9 through 18 and hear God's gracious warning to everyone who rejects him as their king. God tells Samuel, verse 9, Listen to the people, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Samuel told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties, to plow his ground and reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord won't answer you on that day. What a warning God issues his people. He clearly lays out the consequences for their choice. And did you catch the word that God uses over and over and over again to describe what a king will do? A king will take, 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 take. Yeah, he'll go out before them and fight their battles, but it will come at a steep cost. He will take their sons and their daughters. He will take their best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards. He will take a tenth of their grain. He will take their vineyards. He will take their servants. He will take their animals. He will take and take and take until the people of Israel begin to feel like his slaves and they cry out to God for deliverance just like their ancestors did all those many years ago when they were slaves in Egypt. However, despite the clarity of the warning, the people stubbornly refuse to listen. Walking by faith is just too scary. They want to walk by sight. Look at verses 19 through 22. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, he'll go out before us, and he will fight our battles. Well, Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. 
appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, each of you go back to your city. Well, in the coming weeks, we're going to learn more about the king God will give to his people. But before we conclude, I want to return to the gracious warning of this text. I think it is fitting that the word God uses to describe what Israel's king will do is take, take, take. Isn't this exactly what all the God replacements we turn to eventually do to us as well? Though they provide some short-term satisfaction, the peace and security they provide for us comes at a steep cost. Slowly but surely, the God replacements we look to begin to take from us and enslave us. Our modern word for this is addiction, a type of slavery to what we had looked to for deliverance. And if left unchecked, these God replacements that we turn to can lead us toward becoming alcoholics, shopaholics, workaholics, TVaholics, gluttons, porn addicts, enslaved to the false kings we turn to for comfort and peace. And these kings are ruthless in their demands of us. They take our time, they take our money, they take our relationships with those we love, they take our joy, they take our mental health, they take our freedom, they take and take and take and take. Dear friends, this is what all the kings we will turn to will do to us. What we need, what we need is a king who gives. A king who says, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give myself as a ransom for many. This is the kind of king we need, and this is the kind of king Jesus is. Jesus came to this earth not to take, but to give of himself for us. No wonder Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is a king who is so very different from all the other kings of this earth. He willingly laid down his life for us, paying our debt for our sins, and then rose three days later, victorious over sin and death. And now, as king, he promises to give full forgiveness. He promises to give the gift of eternal life to any who are willing to abandon their foolish allegiance to the kings who take and instead to love, find refuge in, fear, set their hope in him, the king who gave himself for them. Jesus is a king who truly gives the peace, the security, the comfort we long for. Listen to what King Jesus promises to give his fearful, insecure people. Psalm 46, King Jesus says, I am your refuge and strength. I am your helper who is always, always, every time, without fail, found in your times of trouble. Therefore, do not be afraid. 
in calling us to not be afraid. Jesus is not scolding us for being fearful. He's like a loving parent, comforting their scared child, pulling them close and saying, there, there, little one. You don't need to be afraid because I'm here. I'm with you. I love you. Everything is going to be okay. And in Psalm 91, King Jesus says, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. This is what King Jesus promises to give his people. He promises to give the protective shield of his faithfulness to you, to cover you and hold you close and keep you safe and secure under his wings. And in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, King Jesus tells his fearful, scared disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and we could say, be my distinct people. Don't become like all the other nations, but make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, remember, my dear children, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a king we have in Jesus a king who will never, ever leave us or forsake us, a king who promises to always be there for us, who goes out before us and fights our battles for us so that we can sing, I'm fighting a battle you have already won. And so my final question for us this morning is simple. When we face the inevitable fears and insecurities of life, how will we respond? Will we reject the God who gives for a king who takes? Or will we, by God's grace, entrust ourselves to him who, and live faithfully for him as his holy and distinct people in this world? Let's pray.